Good morning, Trinity Heights. Today's reading is from Matthew 4, 18-22. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. Good morning and welcome to Trinity Heights virtual service. Thank you for joining us again this morning as we kick off a new series, which I have uh, titled uh, How to Grow Spiritually, Blunt and to the Point Perhaps. In this series, I want to read the different accounts of Jesus calling his first disciples. And as we do that, I want to think about spiritual growth. I want to ask, what, what does it mean to grow spiritually or, or how can I become spiritually mature. The calling of the first disciples may seem like you know, very short stories, and we might wonder, you know, what, what can we really learn from these very brief encounters? But as we read these stories, slowly, very slowly, and as we notice some of the details and ask certain questions, I think these stories will disclose Jesus' own vision for spiritual growth. So that's what I want to do. I want to think about spiritual growth in the context of these very familiar, very short stories where Jesus calls his very first disciples. So when Jesus calls his first disciples, we should remember that he doesn't appear to them as God incarnate. He doesn't appear to them as the paradoxical fully God and yet fully human being. He doesn't appear to them as the second person of the Trinity, the son of the father. Now, I'm not suggesting that he was not those things, but the first disciples had no creeds to check or formalized doctrine to adhere to. And so these are not the theological understandings that they would have had when they first encountered Jesus. The scaffold of Christian theology had not yet grown up around him. So, so just set aside those theological and political claims just for a moment so that we can see Jesus through his disciples' eyes on the day he called them to follow him. The one designation which all the disciples would have agreed upon, and, and which was agreed upon not, not only by Jesus' friends, but his enemies as well, and everyone in between, was the designation rabbi. Rabbi simply means teacher. Well, actually, it's, it's a little bit more exalted than that. It might mean master or literally great one. His disciples, the general audience, the, the rich who had everything, the poor who had nothing, Torah teachers, Pharisees, Sadducees, they all agreed on this designation. They all called him rabbi. So what they know for sure, as Jesus approaches them that day, is that this rabbi is coming to them and giving them the invitation, come, follow me. It might be helpful to hear the invitation of a rabbi in the context of Jewish education at the time, 
there were three different stages of education within the Judaism of Jesus' day, Bet Sefer, Bet Talmud, and Bet Midrash. First comes Bet Sefer, the house of the book. From ages five to 10, a child would be enrolled in Bet Sefer. And at this stage of education, it, it usually took place in the synagogue. And, and the focus there was on reading and memorizing the Torah. The large portions of the Torah were memorized, and, it, and it's likely that many students knew the entire Torah by memory by the time that this level of education was finished, which is incredible. So, so 10-year-olds could memorize all of that. At this point, most students then stayed at home to help with the family and learn the family trade. The next stage was Bet Talmud. From age 10 to 12, a child joined the Bet Talmud. And the meaning of this term was house of learning. And, and this stage, the focus was on studying the oral interpretations of the Torah and seeing what the commentators said and sort of learning the rest of Jewish scripture by heart as well. This would have been the stage of education that Jesus had reached when Jesus' parents find him in the temple as a boy. Do you remember that story when Jesus goes missing? And after they'd celebrated the Passover in Jerusalem, Jesus' family and friends are heading back home, and they just assume that Jesus is somewhere with a friend or family, somewhere in the caravan of people making the journey together. But after a day or so, they realize He's not actually with anyone in the caravan. Is he with you? No, I, I thought he was with you. And, and so they turn around and they go back to look for him. Luke tells a story like this. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. Sometimes Christians think that because Jesus was, according to Christian doctrine, fully God, he just sort of accessed this divine omniscience, the divine knowledge, whenever he wanted to and whenever it was convenient. So he sort of had all of this information and all the right answers whenever he needed it, kind of like being able to sort of Google stuff before there was Google. Uh, if, if we went back in time, we could produce perhaps a similar effect. We, we just have to be like this. Hang, hang on. Google says, I mean, God says that the answer is. But, but this does not take the other part, this sort of view of things, doesn't take the other part of Christian doctrine seriously that says Jesus was in fact fully human and as such he had to grow and he had to learn and he had mature had to mature in in fact luke says uh, in chapter 2 verse 52 he says and jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with god and man jesus grew in wisdom and stature in other words jesus 
did not have a, a divine search engine in his head, but he had to grow and he had to learn like you and I. And so when we find him in the temple as a 12 year old boy, dazzling his elders, we're not witnessing a test of Jesus encyclopedic knowledge. They were not playing a sort of ask me anything, go on, ask me anything. What we're witnessing instead is, is a brilliant student who is the result of that interesting mix of personal genius, hard work, and a very particular type of education. Betsafer, the house of the book, and Bet Talmud, the house of learning. And then after 12 or 13, the really gifted students joined the Bet Midrash, which means the house of study. And the house of study would be conducted under a famous rabbi. The student, usually called a Talmud or disciple, would attach himself to and travel with the rabbi as part of his education. But in order to enter into this third level of education, only the very best, the cream of the crop, would be accepted. I've been speaking recently to a friend of the family back in England who just graduated sixth form, or what we call high school here. And, and she's brilliant uh, with math and computer science and is really used to just coming top of the class. Now, with these kids, you, you know, you tend to encourage them to apply to Oxford or Cambridge and, and, and they can apply to one or the other, but the rules are you can't apply to them both. In addition to, the, to having the best grades, you also have to have the backing of your teachers you know, just to be able to apply in the first place, which she had because she is just brilliant. And some of the unique features of the Oxbridge system include the, the sort of one-on-one -on -one tutorial system where you don't really go to lectures as such, but you meet with a tutor and you read and discuss papers instead. Also, your bachelor's degree automatically becomes a master's degree if you can stay out of trouble for a couple of years after you graduate. In other words, if you don't commit any crimes, you don't go to prison, then it just becomes a master's. So you, you still only do three years study but you end up with a master's degree. But unfortunately, one of the final exams didn't go quite as expected and she didn't get in this time around. And of course, instead of being able to take a year off and have a fun gap year and backpack through Europe or something like that, she had to spend it stuck at home, things being the way they are, with not much else to think about, but how she didn't quite make the cut. Well, the competition's tough. And when you're as competitive as she is, it's difficult to discover that that young age, that as brilliant as you might be, you might not be the very best of the best. And just as we have elementary school and high school before going to university, and depending on what grades you get determines on whether or not you advance to the next stage of education, so too people in Jesus' day would be filtered out by their own education system. In Jesus' day, you didn't apply to Oxford or the Ivy League, but if you were brilliant, just brilliant, you did put your application in to the rabbi. So, one day, James and John are mending their nets. They're fishermen. And Jesus comes and he says to them, come, follow me. And they drop their nets and they leave their father's household and they follow Jesus. 
you know, I used to, used to read that and think, wow, why, why would they just drop everything and leave their father's house? It seems a little mysterious. You know, you're in the middle of your work day and you suddenly quit and, and your dad doesn't try to stop you leaving. Was Jesus using some sort of divine mind control? But when we consider that only the best of the best, those who would recite the, could recite the entire Pentateuch, they would perhaps be considered. The, these guys were not the best of the best. They didn't have a rabbi. So they went, that's why they went into their father's business instead. They were not academics or intellectuals. I'm not, I'm not saying they didn't actually become brilliant people who gave the world the greatest literature and art, but, but not right now, not at this point. So when Jesus comes to them, it's almost too good to be true. They're not asking, can you be my rabbi? He's asking them, come and be my disciple. It's, it's all back to front and it's upside down. Jesus comes and says to them, come and follow me. I remember sitting at a conference and listening to a, a very prominent Christian leader in, in America talking about his leadership principle, his strategy for raising great leaders. And he said, I go for the best. I only hire the ones with the proven track record. I only hire the thoroughbreds was the phrase he used. If I mentioned his name to you, um, you'd recognize the name, but I'm, I'm not going to do that. I'm, but I'm, what I am glad to say is that my friends and colleagues, also leaders in the church, when they heard this, they just balked at that. They immediately said, you mean like the thoroughbreds like Judas, who betrayed Jesus, and Simon Peter, who denied Jesus, and James and John, who were fighting for rank and position next to Jesus, and the others who Jesus called to be his first disciples. You know, I always used to think that we begin to see Jesus turning over the social hierarchies when we read about Jesus going to the lepers or to the demon possessed or to the graveyard or, or, or to the, the dead girl. Those stories are often sort of told together and in quick succession as a way of saying, look, look what Jesus is doing. He's turning things on their head. He's breaking the social norms. He's breaking with convention. So whenever I read those stories, it seems very clear. Okay, Jesus brings the people in from the margins of Israel society to the center. Uh, the, the locked out are, are let in, and, and Jesus brings people in from the cold. But what I hadn't realized is that Jesus has started doing that even before he started his public ministry, right at this point where he's choosing his first disciples, that moment when he says to the disciples, come, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. The reason why they abandoned everything without a second thought and without a moment's hesitation, and the reason why their parents didn't try to hold them back is because this is the equivalent of the top universities approaching the high school dropout and offering them a place at Oxford or in the Ivy League. Only of course, the honor being conferred is infinitely greater because it's not just a case of being given access and opportunity for the best education money can buy, even though they didn't make the cut and were filtered out by the highly competitive system. No, the offer being conferred here is infinitely greater because 
although they didn't know it at the time, here was the incarnate word of God who had come not just to teach them the law and teach them the prophets, but as Jesus says, I have come to fulfill the law and the prophets. In other words, I've come to fulfill God's purposes and God's plan for creation. And so here's the really amazing and I think very beautiful thing. When Jesus invites his disciples to follow him, he's inviting them to fulfill the law and the prophets with him. He's saying, come, let us fulfill the plans and purposes of God together. And so before we excuse ourselves, before we feel inadequate to the task, consider the disciples. Consider the occupation Roman soldier. Consider the tax collector and consider the prostitute. Each one had been told, you can't fulfill the plans and purposes of God. Each one had internalized the message and, and felt the weight of that for themselves. But I hope you can hear Jesus' invitation fresh again this morning. Because Jesus looks at each one of them in their own particular brokenness, just as he looks at each one of us in ours. And he says, come, follow me. Let us fulfill the plans and purposes of God together. Amen.